0: I pray that you will open your word, uh, enrich our lives, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand. And uh, Father, may we change. Work in us what pleases you. Work in us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. There was an amazing concert pianist. He was having his opening uh, debut. He was going to be his first performance ever, and the, the auditorium was filled. And uh, he, he sat at his grand piano on stage, and he played this amazing concert, uh, amazing songs, and, and the audience sat in rapt attention, uh, just watching him because of how good he was. And when he finished his concert, the audience exploded in the standing ovation. And uh, the piano player went up, and he did his bows and all that. But when he walked off stage, he was dejected. And as he got to the backstage, the manager came to him and said, why, why, you know, this was an amazing concert. Look at how, the response that you had. You know, why are you so dejected? And, and he said, the, the crowd just exploded in applause, except for one elderly man. And he goes, yeah, that man was my piano teacher. And he, here, here the issue is this. Um, And I know there's limitations to every story and every analogy. but, But he wanted to please his master. And he knew that his master had an ear that the rest of the audience didn't have. And that his master had worked with him on the details of things. And the one person he wanted to please was his master. And he was playing for an audience of one. Now the rest applauded and all that. But he wanted his master's approval. And now there are some breakdowns in the analogy but I but I think here's here's the thing that I want to draw for us is that the issue in our lives as Christians doesn't matter what the rest of the world says doesn't matter the accolades of men we're, we we want to please a master of one we want to please our father and and so the, though the rest of the world laud us and extol our virtues and and, and we get the praise of, men. If, if we're not pleasing God, then some, we've missed it somewhere. Right. And so what I want to talk about tonight is this issue of pleasing God. Over the years, God has taken me on a number of journeys in my personal life. And in, in terms of my personal devotional, uh, and they've often led into messages and so on, but years ago it was on, on seeking God and from that it got to be, well, God's seeking things and out of that I got to find out what God's passionate about because of the things that he seeks. <laughs> and there's five things that he particularly seeks that are important to him. And then it got me to, well, what does God delight in? There's lots of passages that talk about God delights in these things. And I think if God delights in it, shouldn't that be important to me? Should not that change my heart? And then... It got to be, okay, how do I please God? What is God pleased with? And a lot of times we don't think along these lines, I guess. Um, well, maybe uh, for me, I'm kinda, those are kind of the journeys I've gone on. How, how do I please God? And what does that look like? And so, so tonight we want to take a look at, at uh, what it is to please God. And the reality is, if we please God, we're not often going to be a pleaser of men, in fact, the Apostle Paul said, if I were yet, if, uh, he says, if I was seeking the favor of men, uh, or he said, if I was striving to please men, if I were still try- trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. <laughs> because often they're not going to be together. Sometimes you might get that if people share the same values and they're going, hey, you know, you're a good example and whatever that case might be. But generally, if you're pleasing God, you're not going to please the world for sure. And if you're pleasing the world, you're not going to please God. And so what does it look like? To please God. And a number of passages that have been in my There's many different passages that we could talk about. I'm going to share a few general passages to get some thoughts. And then I want to park primarily in one uh, passage of scripture. But the Bible talks about, you know, Jesus pleased the Father. In fact, even when he was baptized and the voice from heaven came, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. <laughs> now at this point, Jesus had not done anything in terms of he, he had not done any miracles. The Holy Spirit came on him at baptism. Uh, he hadn't taught. He, he hadn't died for the world yet. He hadn't even called his disciples yet. And yet here the Father is saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I think there's a part of the Father's pleasure in our lives that is unconditional based on his love for us. And when you're a son or a daughter of the King, of Kings, <laughs> the Lord of Lords, when you're a son or go- daughter of God, There is a pleasure in you just because you're his child. And he's well pleased in you. But Jesus also goes on to say in another passage, and and I love that passage as well. He says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please, that please the Father. Now, that's quite an amazing statement. I always do the things that please him. Now, I'm not sure I can say that. I'm not sure that I'm in tune enough that I can say, I always do the things. Another passage, he says, the things he speaks, I speak. The things he does, I do. And so he's really in tune with that. And so Jesus becomes an example for us. One, of, one who's, who's got the Father's pleasure just because of who he is. But also one who seeks to please his Father with the way he lives and the things that he does. He seeks to be doing those things in that way. Another passage in Romans tells us that really, apart from God, we can't please him anyway. says, uh, uh, it says that, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is speaking of those who are unregenerate, those who do not have the Holy Spirit in them, those who are separated from God in sin. No matter what a a, a non-Christian person does, it doesn't please God. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so, but the Apostle Paul goes on to say, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So by being in the spirit here, he's talking about those who are in the realm of the the spirit because the Holy Spirit dwells in them. And it goes on to say, uh, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So so basically what he's saying, those now who have Christ in them through his spirit, they have the ability to please God. Those who don't have Christ, his spirit and them don't have the ability because they're going to do it for selfish motives or they've got whatever is going to happen but the spirit of god empowers us and enables us to be able to please god another passage in hebrews says that without faith it's impossible to please god and he uh it says for for he must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and this chapter is a whole hall of faith in fact just before this enoch got the testimony that he pleased god and god took him And it goes on and it gives a testimony of all these men and women who took steps of risk and steps of faith in obedience to God's call, uh, sometimes not even knowing where they're going or they're having to sacrifice temporal things or or trusting God for deliverance or whatever the case might be. But faith, faith, this place of saying, God, I trust your person and your character and I'm going to step out knowing you're going to meet me. And without that kind of faith, it's impossible to please Him. Because it reflects our trust in His character. And then uh, Paul says this in Second uh, Corinthians, where he says, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, he's talking about in this passage about either being present in the body here or dying and going home to be with the Lord. But he says, our ambition, whatever place it is, whether we're here on this earth or we're in heaven, our ambition is to please God. So he says to be pleasing to him. For we must, and he gives the reason for that, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there's going to come a time when I stand before the judgment of God and God's going to judge what I've done while I'm in this body, whether they've been good or bad and whether I've pleased him or not. And I want God to say, good job. Well done. You've pleased me. I want to hear that. You know, I believe that every believer, when the Spirit of God comes into your heart, I believe that he births something in your heart and deposits something in your heart where it's, I want to please the Father. I think it's like every child wants to please his or her earthly father. There's something in the heart of a believer that says, "I want to please the Father. God, are you happy with me?" And uh, there was a girl on, on my ministry tour this last spring, and she heard from her father all the time, "I love you." So she knew she was loved of her father, but she never ever heard from him, "I'm proud of you." And I never really equated that as a, a, a difference. She knew unconditional love, but she wanted to also to hear, "Good job." Man, I was so pleased with what you did. And I think there is that unconditional component that we have. But I think we want God to be pleased with us. That we live in such a way. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, awesome. (laughs) You know, and and I think there's something in my heart. When I get to the end of my life, I want that on my epitaph or whatever. He pleased God. Or well done. Or whatever it is. Because I, what, what higher testimony could we have? If the whole world applauds us. And we become rich and famous and all the stuff that happens. And yet I haven't done what pleases him. I failed. I failed. And, the, and success is pleasing God. I believe those two things are together. Okay, so... This is the passage we want to look at, and 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 Paul is writing here. Now, there's many passages we could have looked at when it comes to pleasing God. Paul has a number of prayers with that regard. There's a number of other passages, uh, some similar to this, and there's individual verses. Even you know when children obey their parents, that's well pleasing in God's sight, and so on. There's there's quite a few passages that way too, but. First Thessalonians four one says this Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you do walk, that you excel still more. So Paul is saying, I taught you how to walk and please God. There are certain behaviors that if you do them, that's pleasing to God. Now walk here, he's not talking physically in that you have a giant step or a small step or you jump high or whatever. This is speaking, it's a metaphor, live. (laughs) That you would live in a way to please God. And so Paul uh, has given them instruction on, on how that's to happen. So if we take a look, how do we please God? And we take a look at this passage. Paul actually goes through three ways in this passage that we can please God. And the first one is this, by living a life of moral purity. We can please God through living a life of moral purity. And so I put verse 1 on here again. He says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you've received instruction from us as how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more. He says, For you know, by, know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Let's just stop there. Are these Paul's commandments? <laughs> is this Paul's authority that's saying, do this? He's not saying that. Paul is saying we gave you these commandments, we were authorized by Jesus. <laughs> this is from his authority. This is, this is what, what is of God. <laughs> and so he goes on to say, for this is the will of God. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Now, a lot of times we want to know personal direction for our life choices and so on, but the Bible has a lot to say about God's moral will for our lives. And if we disregard that, we're going to miss it in the other things. Because God's not going to bless us in our other part of our life if we're breaking his His moral will for our lives. In fact, he will not lead us to do things that are contrary to his moral will. And so this is the will of God for your life. Uh, It says, your sanctification. Now, sanctification is a big word, but it basically means that you become holy. You become holy as he is holy. The word sanctify means to be set apart. You're set apart from sin unto God. And you are set apart from uh, fleshly, sinful purposes for holy purposes. So the Sabbath was set apart to God. The temple was set apart to God. We are set apart to God. We're satans, and that's all part of what it is. And he explains what the, a little bit more what that is, and he says that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this is not a common message that we teach this, but but all of a sudden he's saying, man, if you want to please God, you need to live morally pure. If you're not living morally pure, that's not pleasing to God. And so what we begin to say, well, what is immorality? And if you go into Scripture, there's only one moral sexual act, and that is in the bonds of marriage. And so the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 4, it says the marriage bed is not to be defiled, it's not to be contaminated, it's not to be um, intruded on by wrongful acts. That is something that is between a husband and wife in a monogamous relationship. And he says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So the one, the one holy act in terms of sexuality or sex for in God's mind, is marriage. Anything outside of that circle is immorality. And so this term uses two words, fornicators and adulterers. In English, fornicator uh, speaks of an unmarried person uh, involved in consensual sexual sin with another unmarried person. (laughs) And in our world, there's nothing wrong with that. But in biblical terms, there's huge things wrong with that. Premarital sex is, is not God's plan for a couple. And, and when I look at the amount of pastoral counseling I've done over the years and, uh, and the brokenness in relationships and the ramifications, uh, I mean, this started years ago. I remember when I had to do a youth retreat in the Kananaskis. And a young boy wanted to speak to me and we went for a walk. He was 16 years old. And he said, Pastor Paul... He said, I've just come to Christ three months ago, and I need some advice. He says, I have five children by five different girls. Sixteen. That was quite a talk. (laughs) I talked with him about forgiveness, but I also talked with him about sowing and reaping and responsibility. And I referred him to his youth pastor, and I said, he needs lots of attention. Some of these girls were wanting support. Man, I could tell you the ramifications of premarital sex. Even the suicide rates, the statistics on suicide rates, and so on. There's tons we could talk about on that. That's not my purpose tonight. And then the heartache when a man or a woman has sat in my office when their spouse has been unfaithful to them. It is absolutely devastating. The betrayal of trust. The depth of pain and grief that that person goes through. And yet, many times, the willingness to forgive if that person would be repentant. And how often that other person hasn't been repentant and broken the marriage. And the devastation on the children and the family and, 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 and. And the pain of that. I I would say that in our day and age, probably one of the greatest challenges to the church today... And, and going to be increasingly so, is in, the, is in the area of sexual immorality. All you have to do is look at television, uh, there's a cesspool available on the internet, and on and on, uh, the, the challenges of Christian young people. Uh, one Christian school, they had done a survey in, I won't. it's not one in the city here, it's in a different city, and 100% of the boys and 70% of the girls had looked at pornography. That never happened when I grew up. But it's a huge issue. And we as a church need to be able to address this in in a a redemptive way, but also in a truthful way. And I think those are realities for us. Uh, Tonight I want to also spend a little bit of time on the homosexual thing. And because there's so much confusion on this. uh, I don't know if you've watched YouTube and some of the videos by Tony Campolo and Rob Bell and their endorsement of same-sex marriage. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the World Vision recent <laughs> uh, faux pas when they were allowing same-sex people on their staff and had announced as such, and then the backlash from the denominations. This is the U.S. branch. And then two days later, they recant that. And this, is, this hit the news just this last week or so. And all the stuff that's happening, there's so much confusion on this. As to, was well, this right and, you know, wrong? And I'd like to just address it a little bit. One of the arguments that is being used is, well, Jesus never addressed homosexuality. Therefore, he didn't think it was a big deal. Therefore, it's okay. The reality is, Jesus didn't address a lot of things. (laughs) He didn't talk about incest. He didn't talk about human trafficking. He didn't talk about spousal abuse. Are we to say that Jesus endorsed those things just because he didn't talk about them? See, arguing from silence is horrible. It's it's a very poor way to interpret the scriptures. In fact, Jesus did speak for heterosexual marriage. And in a Jewish culture, that was the standard, and and Jesus endorsed it. He said, he answered and said, have you Uh, you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? (laughs) Right? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. (laughs) And so... Jesus supported heterosexual marriage. Not only did he support it, Any time he spoke in terms of sexual sin, it was always in the context, this violates heterosexual marriage, lusting after another woman, or, or the whole divorce issue, or, or he talked about "out of the heart comes adultery," and, and all this. It was always in the context of understanding of a heterosexual marriage. Another thing is, well, Paul, and so what they do is they try to put Jesus over Paul. And Paul wasn't as inspired. <laughs> well, that's bad hermeneutics, too. <laughs> and Paul actually addresses this issue three times. Most are familiar with Romans 1. That's the one passage that actually talks about lesbians as well. But he, he talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. He says, Do you not know Have you not uh, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. Uh, pornos, that's, we get our word pornography from that, obviously. Nor uh, idolaters, nor adulterers. Nor adulterers nor effeminate. The word effeminate there, people go, is that just someone who's maybe more feminine and characteristic? No, this is probably the person who was the, the female, played the female in a homosexual relationship. That's what this is referring to. And then it says, or homosexuals. Arsenacoites, we're going to look at that word. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor vilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. <laughs> Those who, but then, he also, here's the redemption. Such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. See, there's this place where God takes broken people and sinful people, and he, he heals them and cleans them up, and he sets them free. Another passage that I often have never heard used is First Timothy 1, 8 to 11, and to me, this is the clearest passage, uh, one of the clearer passages in the New Testament. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murders. So there's a whole list here of things that aren't good. And he adds on to this, and immoral men, again, the broader term there, and homosexuals, arsenic coites, we'll look at what that is, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. And he adds this clause, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching... According to what? Not according to the law. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. That lifestyle is not endorsed by the Bible in the New Testament. It's contrary to the gospel. And we need to be clear about that and not to be trying to compromise to to get the applause of men. Here's the issue what's the politically correct issue? And if we're getting the applause of men, and he's not pleased, I've made a wrong choice. And so we, need to, we, not, we don't be needing to look to the applause of men to get our approval on this. So where did Paul get his phrase, uh, arsenal cortes on this? Arsenak cortes" actually comes from two words, male and bed. When the Bible talks about the marriage bed, the word is "cortes." But that word also was used for sexual Intercourse. It was a euphemism. To bed someone is to go to bed with them. And so arsenic where did Paul get that? Out of the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament, about 400 years before Christ, was translated from Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint version. And if you look at the Greek of the Septuagint, Leviticus says, you shall not lie with a male, arsenos, as one lies, coitane, as one beds with a female, it is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, if there is a man who lies with a male, arsonos, as those who lie, lie, uh, my tense is mistyped there, Coitane with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death, their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now, Paul's saying this is applicable in the New Testament and it's applicable for the gospel. And uh, there's just so many in, our, in the Christian circles that are caught up and they're being duped by some of the messages that are coming out. And usually it's because they're getting away from Scripture and they're saying, well, God really doesn't hate them and, and how can you be so intolerant and, and on and on and on. But they're really not dealing with the Scripture and the passages themselves. And there's a lot of other arguments we could talk about. That's not my purpose tonight. How do we respond to people trapped in sexual immorality? These are sexual sins that we're we're having to face in the church. What is the response to someone that is an adulterer? What is the response to someone who is practicing premarital sex? What is the response to someone who's a homosexual? I think Jesus gives us a response. And his response is found as he meets a woman trapped in adultery. (laughs) And it's very simple. Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Grace to forgive, grace to change. And what we have in our world today is we have the liberal says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin. That's what the liberal says. Neither do I condemn you, go and sin. And we have the legalist that says, I, cond- um, I condemn you, go. You know, get out of here, we don't want to see you. You're dirty. Those are the two extremes that are happening. The, but the answer is Jesus. Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Grace, to, to say, okay, are you repentant? Then there's forgiveness for you. But God calls you to live a life of moral purity. That's what's pleasing to him. And he also gives you the grace to do that. The same grace that forgives us is the same grace that enables us to overcome. And that's the response. We ha- if we come with a message of condemnation to our world, then we're bringing a wrong message. But if we come with a message of con- uh, condoning the act, we're bringing a wrong message as well. We've got to come and say, here's the truth, but here's... Here's the love part, but there's got to be change. And we've got to be willing to reach out and interact and, and to demonstrate that love. One of our weaknesses as a, as a church as a whole is we don't know how to, to demonstrate love in those types of cases. But that doesn't mean we improve. And those become the, the challenge that's there. And so the Bible tells us that grace not only brings salvation... <laughs> It says this in in Titus, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the grace of God not only brings salvation and forgiveness, but the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. And it enables us. Grace is an enabling agent of God, and his spirit lives within us. In fact, the Apostle Paul, later on in this passage, uh, he talks about sanctification. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, make you fully holy, (laughs) right? And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. So God wants to work in our lives to bring a moral purity and holiness, amen? Okay, let's, let's move on. Uh, and this is talking about how each of us need to possess our own vessel. Uh, primary, most scholars feel that, speaking of our bodies, that we need to control our own bodies in sanctification and honor because uh, the Bible says also that we have this treasure in earth and vessels and so on. And so it goes on. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not go, know God and so on and not defraud. Defra- let's move on quickly here. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects us is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit. That's pretty pretty strong language. If you reject the message of moral purity, you're not rejecting man. You're rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit. Okay, Uh, and we'll skip through that. The second thing we do to please God is by living a life of love. And Paul says, uh, what happened there? Uh, Now, as as to the love of the brethren, you have no one uh, need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Love. How many know this is the hallmark trait of the Christian? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The greatest commandment in the Old Testament is love God. The second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What fulfills all the law? Those two commandments. What pleases God? Loving others. And loving is demonstrated through action. Someone once said, love isn't love until you give it away. You know, if it's just something in your heart, now love starts in the heart. But if it's just there and doesn't come out and demonstrate itself, it's not really fully love. Love demonstrates itself in giving. God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus said this, greater love has no man than this, and he lay down his life for his friend. That person has given the greatest thing he can give, which is his life for another person. And I found that when when it comes to loving, it requires something of me. It costs something of me. For me, one of the most valuable things that it costs is time. When I sit and listen to someone, and I give them respect and attention that's due them, that costs me time. When I sacrifice because it's inconvenient for me to get up in the middle of the night and nurse a sick child, <laughs> when I have to be interrupted in my leisure, you know, it's pretty easy to sit and read a paper and watch TV rather than go help do the dishes. You know what I'm saying? Like, love is going to cost. And I want to tell you, Livingstones Church is a great church, It's a loving church. There's a young man in this church who, about seven or eight years ago, he went to the Bethany Care Home, and he said, is there anyone here that I can visit? I say young man, he's probably in his 40s, (laughs) but he's younger than I am. The reason I know this is because I know both the young man and the person he visits. They, They put him in contact with a man that has been a friend of mine since the 80s, who is a quadriplegic now because of the ravages of MS and has been in the Bethany care home for years, ever since it was built and somewhere else even before that, uh, I think Innisfil. And this young man goes every week, has done this for seven or eight years and visits my friend. That's love. Love in action. Stephen Ministry here in the church Walking alongside people in crisis. That's love in action. Uh, When the prayer shawl ministry was announced (laughs) some time back, that moved my heart. People are taking the time to make Afghans and quilts and whatever they do pray over them so that someone in crisis can wrap that around their shoulders and know that someone's praying for them. That's love in action. Serving kids down there. What, la- uh, years ago, I talked to one lady who was volunteering in the kids' ministry, and I said, how did your morning go? She said, I spent the whole morning taking children to the bathroom. I said, bless you. <laughs> <laughs> so that people can be in the service and, and hear God's word, and those kids can have a good time too, but they need to go to the potty. and So who's going to take them? That's love. It's going to cost. And, and even, even the traits of love, being love is patient, love is kind... You can't have patience without showing patience or kindness. So you read the traits, they're all going to have actions. The final thing here is by living a life of responsibility. And the Apostle Paul says this, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Now this is, I've, this passage, I like this passage. Because there has been a tendency in years past, whenever there's a prophecy, it's some highfalutin thing. You know, thus saith the Lord, you're going to reach the nations and you're going to be an evangelist. And, and there's a place for that. I've never heard this in a prophecy. Thus saith the Lord, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business and to work with your hands. But you know what? I believe that this is a message for the church. The, the bulk of the church is a salt and light influence out there salting the world in the workplace. Right. And it's as they're out in that workplace being a quiet influence for Jesus. And not obnoxious. Not pushy. When you need to, you speak up. When there's an opportunity to present Christ, you do it. But you're not cramming them down the throat of everybody. But they see your work ethic. <laughs> and they see your lifestyle. And and Paul goes on to say that so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You want to behave properly toward those outside? This is how you do it. Plus you provide for your needs and the needs of your family. Awesome. In fact, the Apostle Paul in another passage says, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions be made on behalf of all men, for kings, etc., that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. A quiet and peaceful life. There's a place to just live, be faithful, and to work hard and glorify God in the workplace. Amen? How do we have the power to do this? you know, how do we have the power to please God? You go, I can't do it. You're right, we can't. But God enables us to do it. And so Philippians tells us this, that for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to please him. He's working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, another translation. Where does that come from? If you have the desire to please God, that's God working in you. And the one who worked that desire in you will also work the ability to do that. Finally, uh, we see this also in Paul's prayer, or not Paul's prayer, whoever the writer of Hebrews is, there's a lot of debate on that. (laughs) Uh, Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How does that happen? God works it in us. And so if there's an area that you're struggling and say, God, I don't know if this is pleasing to you. Say, God, would you work in me the ability to do your will? I'm gonna, maybe the worship team can come and may, play a song. We're just gonna pray and uh, dismiss. If, if you'd like prayer, I'd be happy to pray for you uh, as well. But, but why don't we, as, as they play, and would you, in your own heart, as you stand uh, tonight let's stand together would you say God as the searchlight of God's spirit has worked on your heart through the word of God is there something in my life that's not pleasing to you and God if there is would you change me would you work in me both the willingness and the ability to please you in that area of my life Maybe for you it's one of the areas we talked about tonight. It might be a moral issue in your life. It might be a love issue. Someone that you find hard to love. (laughs) It might be a work issue. It might be something we haven't even talked about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, tonight we come and I pray, God, that you would work in us what is pleasing in your sight. We repent of things that do not please you.